Hi there, I'm Ange McCormack. Over summer, we're featuring our favourite episodes of Read This, Schwartz Media's weekly podcast about the books we love and the stories behind them. Today, host Michael Williams speaks with American literary giant George Saunders, the beloved author and short story master behind Lincoln in the Bardo, 10th of September and Liberation Day. Here, George reveals the three words that changed his life. If you love Read This as much as we do, you can subscribe or follow Read This on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Michael with George Saunders. For me, the, the way to think about it is I have prepared beautifully. I've lived both stupidly and wisely. I've read good and bad. I've talked a bunch of shit about writing, you know, all this stuff. But at the moment of truth, that's all back there, you know, behind this dam. And your job is to be kind of a bouncer or kind of a controller to say, only what I need, thank you. That's the voice of George Saunders, maybe the definition of a writer's writer. He's a personal favourite, and a favourite for many, a literary and cultural sensation. David Foster Wallace said he was the most exciting writer in America. Zadie Smith said he'll be read long after these times have passed. Even famous curmudgeon Jonathan Franzen had nothing but praise. He said he makes the all but impossible look effortless. We're lucky to have him. But forget the accolades. The main thing to know is George Saunders writes funny, moving, electrifying fiction. And he's a true original. His big break came when he was selected to the creative writing program at Syracuse University in upstate New York, where he studied under the celebrated short story writer Tobias Wolfe. Since then, he's become known both for his award-winning writing and for his generosity as a literary figure, teaching, a famous commencement speech, essays, articles. And I want to ask him what makes him tick. I want to know the phrase or the idea, the snippet of advice or frequently recalled quotation that helps him do what he does. I call this game Life Sentences. And today, I've asked George Saunders to play. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. George Saunders, what's your life sentence? Well, the one that came to mind when, when you wrote me, Michael, was from Joyce. It was uh, Silence, Exile and Cunning. It's, it sounds very, very literary of me to have that one, but I was, it actually came from um, a period when I was in my 20s in Chicago and I was kind of circling the drain a little bit. I was living with an aunt of mine and I'd just been laid off from a roofing job and I, you know, I had the idea of being a writer, but I'd never done much of it. And it was just kind of, you know, one of those low moments when nothing was going right. So a couple of friends of mine from high school picked up on this, uh, <laughs> you know, mordant, uh, tone I was going into. And they took me to something called the, the car show. So we, we go to the car show and it was nice. And just the fact that they thought of doing it was kind of an uplift. And then we went to lunch afterwards at one of those kind of fake Irish pubs, which is, no, this is on the South side of Chicago. It was like McQuinley's or whatever, you know, something. But as we were going in, there was a cardboard cutout of James Joyce and coming out of a little cartoon bubble uh, from his head was that phrase, which I think is from Portrait of the Artist, Silence, Exile, and Cunning. But something about that phrase just riveted me. And I thought about it the whole lunch, and it, it really changed my, my trajectory 
you know, in that period where you're going from, I'd like to be a writer to I'm actually going to going to be one. So even now I'll get into a certain doubtful period about a book or about a story or just in general. And I'll just go silence. I go on Connie. And that still kind of speaks to me, you know. You go to a better class of faux Irish pub than I do uh, if they have a James Joyce cut out by the door instead of a leprechaun. That's You were moving in exalted circles, clearly. Well, it was amazing, really, because this part of Chicago is South Side, and I don't think it's a particularly, a, not a literary hotbed, but somebody in that place knew who Joyce was and I guess went through the book and pulled that baby out and why it would be, why that would be a good thing to advise your your pub customers of I don't know but uh, I've always I thought that was so funny because you're exactly right it would be you know not not expected to see a Joyce cut out have you thought about what it is that so speaks to you I mean those three words and concepts pull against each other in interesting ways well well the thing that was weird about it was I just I knew exactly what he meant and I hadn't done any writing at that point you know but I knew exactly at least what that meant to me and the way I've taken it apart in the past was the silence was shut up and do it. Like at that point, I was doing a lot of that kind of inner theorizing that artists do. Like, well, what I'll do is I'll have a six book cycle about my childhood, you know, with featuring a talking raccoon or something. So that big theory, which is really your way of saying, I'm too afraid to try, you know, and I don't want to try until I totally know what I'm going to do. And I was also doing a lot of literal talking about it to friends and, you oh, know, when I write my book. And um, so one is just shut up. You know, even if you don't do anything, you're, it's better for you to be quiet about it, you know, than, than to blab on and on. So silence. Exile, I think, for me at that time meant I, I kind of blundered my way into this crazy situation of living in my aunt's basement on a ticking clock. I didn't have a, a job, I think, at that point. Maybe I was working at a convenience store, you know, like that kind of thing. It just seemed to that everything I did was making it worse. So I had this idea that I would soon enact of bolting out of there and going back to where my parents were in Texas and kind of giving myself a, a clean slate. So that was the exile part. Cunning is the part that really spoke to me. And I think it, it indicated a shift. OK, so before that, I was thinking if you only do certain things in your writing, you'll be great. So if you're just truthful or if you just do that Hemingway-esque one true sentence, you'll make it. Or, you know, a whole list of things that you only had to abide by these dictums and you would be good. And I think the cunning meant to me, no, you have to do whatever it is that gets you noticed. You have to figure it out. That's part of what your job is, is to get into some writing and see if it's interesting or not. And if it's not, it's not the end of the world. You can fix it. So in the same way that you might be cunning about a relationship or, or fixing a car, you know, you, you just, well, you got to roll up your sleeves, get in there, mess it up, be stymied. That's when the actual work begins. That's okay. That's not a sign of failure. In cunning in particular, there's an idea of deliberateness, I think, instead of being kind of buffeted along by the tides and fortunes and whatever else is happening. The cunning person is choosing their path, which seems valuable. Yeah, I think especially because, you know, I think everyone likes the idea that if you just enact a certain mindset, your art will be beautiful. That's great. That's But that's autopilot, actually. You know, if I just live by this credo, I never have to think again, never have to struggle again. But I think what I felt in that moment was, well, every work of art is a struggle, against itself, really. You know, you, you start out strong and then the thing becomes its own trap, sort of, you know. So the cunning is to say, make it work, stupid. Figure it out and make it work. And on one level, it's saying the reader is is someone you have to 
enact the cunning upon. But really, once you get into it, it means you have to be cunning in succeeding in charming that person. And then what I found out in the years to come is to charm a person, you can't condescend to that person, you know. So cunning in a certain way is to say to the reader, I let you in 100%. I am going to try to charm you, but we understand that charm means respect at the ultimate level. So as a slightly down at heel, early 20-something, had you already identified that it was the creative urge you know, was that what you were feeling thwarted by? Was that why you were derailed? Because you knew you wanted to write and you hadn't quite found a way? Or was it less well-defined than that? No, that was it. And, you know, it was a little bit like, um, I think Ira Glass here has talked about this thing where your taste is highly developed, but your abilities are lagging behind. So I could read Joyce and totally understand why he was a genius. And then I would fart out my little thing and go, oh God, that's not it, you know? So it was that that frustration. But also for me, there was, in retrospect, I think it was a, I would say it was a bit of a class thing where it was so dear to me, this dream of being a writer, that I was too scared to start. Because in starting, you could reveal that you didn't have what it took and then you're done. So it took me a while to go, well, no, actually, if you try and fail, you started, you know? But so I think with Joyce, I felt something like that, like, okay, you, you can actually step into the boxing ring and see. And if you get hit, that just means it's start, you started, you know, um, as opposed to uh, I'll, I'm a boxer forever if I never get in the ring because I've never lost. It's not that many years between that self-described low moment in a Chicago Irish pub and you being accepted at Syracuse, you know, getting the call from Tobias Wolf. It could have been less than a year because I, that was the spring. I went back to Texas, wrote three stories, and the one story that got me in there, and then I was in by the next Christmas. Not kidding around, that Joyce quote compelled me to go ahead and leave a relationship and go back to Texas and start over. And that was when I um, actually did start writing. It was actually a real, a real turning point. George, I'm picturing listeners like rushing out to the nearest Irish pub, seeking inspiration <laughs> from every Guinness ad they can get in the hope that, <laughs> you know, their fortunes will change. Well, and if not, if not, you're in an Irish pub, so it's still kind of a, a win. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. It's funny hearing George Saunders talk about early doubt when he's so synonymous with success at this point. Not just his insanely ambitious polyvocal ghost story Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Booker Prize, but also his collections of short stories. 
The phrase rockstar short story writer seems unlikely, but Saunders wears it comfortably. He first made his name in that form. There was Pastoralia, In Persuasion Nation. The most recent collection was called Liberation Day. And frankly, if you haven't read any of them, I'd start with 10th of December. It's a work of genius. But to hear Saunders describe it, finding his voice took some time. If I remember correctly, for you early on when you were playing around with your writing and your creativity, it wasn't automatically going to be prose. Songwriting, comedy, you had these other kind of sirens calling you creatively. How did that narrow down to the singular kind of vision for yourself and your own writing? I think because I more clearly sucked at everything else. I tried um, songwriting, yeah, and all those things, I think I... I could be sort of six out of 10 or five out of 10, you know, but it, at what I now understand is a critical moment in a work of art. I just didn't have that strong of a view about it. Like I'd write a song and go, yeah, that's got some chords and, you know, but, but that sort of killer instinct that makes you go, none shall pass. No way. You are not my fucking song. You're too pathetic. But with prose, I, even in that early period of writing, I had such obnoxiously strong opinions about it. You know, I'd write something and go, I cannot live with that. With prose, if I read something I wrote and then went and read Hemingway or read Joyce or read uh, Grace Paley later on, I could really feel what was lacking in mine. You know, sometimes it was lacking in sincerity. Sometimes it needed more rewriting. But there was never any question for me of, um, you know, I could always discern quality in, in prose. That, that was really why I quit the other things. But anyway, you know, your taste will lead you. And in my case, it was like, well, um, if I have always... 9.99 level opinions about prose and six level opinions about songwriting, you you know, you got to choose the former. It sounds to me like you had incredible clarity of purpose about your own writing, but the shift to being read and what that told you about those opinions you had about prose and in particular your own prose. Were you right in your reading of your own work? Did other readers change the way you understood your work? There was a long period where I wasn't actually looking at my own opinion. I was kind of thinking, well, in a Hemingway story, this happens. Uh, or what I like about that Joyce sentence is this. And then sort of trying to artificially, like with pincers, take that quality and put it into my own work. That never worked. But as soon as I kind of started relying on this sort of inner sense of what was cool or funny, funny was especially important early, then then I got readers. And Strangely, at that point, I kind of didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't care about readers, but like when I was writing that first book, I, it was coming to me so strongly that sending it out was almost like an afterthought. I thought, well, they don't have to like it, but if they don't, they're wrong. You know, that kind of, that kind of feeling. Although, of course, it's a little bit like, I hope they'll take it. <laughs> but um, when I got right with my prose, when I started learning how to listen to my own opinions, then it started to go better. And even now, that's the, always the game is like, am I on a given day... Am I in touch with that opinionated part of myself or not? Or the other thing is sometimes you just are coasting on truisms, you know, or because um, even on a day when I'm writing really badly, I'm still thinking all the correct truisms, but they just aren't really real to me, you know, so it's, it's complicated. <laughs> you mentioned sincerity there as being an important kind of marker of whether something's working or not. And I'm interested in that relationship between knowing the craft and thinking about, you know, all the things that you want it to do and the, the kind of end outcome that you're striving for 
and sincerity and finding that voice or that kernel that isn't instrumentalized immediately. For me, what I mean by sincerity in a, in a prose sense is is a lack of agenda. So in other words, you're, you know, you're on page 2.6 and you've just made a nice moment. Part of you wants the moment to be like this or wants it to cause that. That part of you is not to be trusted because it, it, it's an agenda from without. So the sincerity means, okay, what did I just do? What's the next thing that could happen that's the best? You know, what's, what's the next best sentence? And that, you know, that's really tricky because it's, that kind of intuition isn't always available purely, you know? And so for me, rewriting is sort of like giving myself a lot of chances to have a sincere reaction to what I just did as opposed to a contrived reaction. And I'm a pretty controlled person, and I have, so I have a lot of tendency to contrive. So for me, that is like, well, it's a long practice in learning to not contrive, basically. The other element that you mentioned was humor, and making jokes and making people laugh is almost the ultimate in contrivance in terms of there is an outcome and an objective, and there's a kind of building momentum when you're doing it. That's so interesting because you're absolutely right. You know, I remember in, in high school, I had this wonderful teacher named Miss Williams that we all adored, and she was so smart and was having us read really good stuff. And uh, I always wanted to impress her. And the only way I could really was to get a laugh. But she was very um, discerning. So if you made a joke in her class and it bombed, you were in a lot of trouble. Then then you were just being a smart ass. If you hit it just right and the whole class, including her, cracked up, you were a bit of a hero for a minute. And what I learned from that was if there was the slightest, again, we'll call it contrivance, if there was this thing where you go, that will be a funny thing. Should I say it? I shall. Then it would bomb. Whereas if you just, you know, just it, it occurred and you said it. That, so is that contrived? Well, kind of in that I definitely wanted to get a laugh. But I would say it's also in a sense uncontrived because I didn't even have time to contrive it. You know, it was literally like somebody throws a Frisbee and you catch it. Um, so that's the kind of moment in a story, you know, you, you get past your, your moment there, you're, you're at the current moment of the story, you're praying to have some kind of a frisbee catching moment, <laughs> you know, where you're responding to your own text in a way that ultimately I would say isn't contrived because you didn't see it coming, you know. Sincerity is comedy minus time. Oh, that's great. Oh my God. I got to write that one down. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. How useful is influence to you? How useful is being the reader that you are? I think it's it's everything, uh, but I just feel like at the time of writing, you put it aside. It's the same thing as what you had for dinner last night. Is it part of your writing? Yeah. You know, you might have had a lot of tacos in your little farty. Okay, that's fine. But the idea is whatever you've done with reading, with prep, with living, it's all there in, in this sort of imaginary silo over your head. And it's all there, but none of it is useful except in the context of the actual moment that you're in in the story, you know? So if the story demands X and you say, oh, I have Y, I better force it in there. It, it doesn't like that. So I think for me, the, the, you know, so much of the stuff, Michael, is just like psyching yourself out a little bit or, or trying to think about it in a way that will make you more productive. So for me, the, the way to think about it is I have prepared beautifully. I've lived both stupidly and wisely. I've read good and bad. I've talked a bunch of shit about writing, you know, all this stuff. But at the moment of truth, that's all back there, you know, behind this dam. And your job is to be kind of a bouncer or kind of a controller to say, only what I need, thank you. You know, and then that 
kind of in, in a perfect day, that translates into just awareness of the prose that, that you've just read. So that way you don't have to worry about it. I don't, I don't have to. I, now I can have all kinds of conceptual ideas away from the table, but there's a certain mental rearrangement that happens at the moment when it just gets blocked out. So that stuff behind you contributes but doesn't dominate. Uh, so that and that, you know, that's a, again, that's a thing, a thing that's hard to talk about. It's just how do you how do you develop that mindset? But I think, you know, when you really get down to it, the difference for me between a good day and a bad day is how purely am I reacting to the pros on page two when I get to page three. For me, if there's any trying in it, it gets messed up. Like I'm, if I'm walking and I need to have an ending for the story, those ideas are a little bit too um, puppyish. You know, they want to please too much and they don't fit. But but the one thing is, to, the test is, you put it into the text in progress and you read it at speed. Does it trip you up or does it make you happy? You know, everything has to audition by those standards. You know, you are not only one of our greatest contemporary writers, you're a celebrated teacher of creative writing. What do you get out of teaching? It's a living. I mean, it, it means that it gets me complete artistic freedom. Uh, it also gets me, uh, you know, into the cage every day with the thing itself. Like these young writers are so hungry and they're so good and they will not tolerate phone-ins because they're too good. And, you know, the biggest thing it's given me, Michael, is when I first started, I just wanted to show I wasn't stupid. You know, I wanted to provide value by scribbling all over their stuff and sort of asserting dominance in a certain way. I think it's kind of natural. But as I'm getting older and I'm doing it more, it's become really clear that the only reason to do it is to provide some benefit, real benefit. So it's one simple question. If I give a student an edit, does she have a next thing to do that's valuable or not? And that, I mean, as a credo for life, I mean, that's pretty big. You know, if you could just be helpful to everybody in a tiny way, that's pretty good. You know, so it's it's been a great training thing over the years. To, you know, you have a chance to interact with the brilliant young person who's a version of you when you were that age, who wants it just as much, you know. So it, it keeps getting more interesting, actually, as the years go by, which surprises me a little bit. Does silence, exile, and cunning get harder with each year? Is it harder to carve out your own version of that? Yes, I think that's a great question. It does, because silence would, for me now, would mean there's some shit you don't have to talk about, you know. I mean, I talk so much about politics. I don't know anything about politics. But if someone asked me, I'll just, you know, like any middle to late-aged uncle, I'll just pipe right up. So silence is a friend. Um, exile, uh, that I'm pretty good at, because what that means is no matter where I am, it's uh, off limits and it's a safe space or, you know, or like an intense, an intense space. So that's okay. The cunning becomes, all right, buddy, you've written a, a number of things. Uh, can you do something that's truly new that isn't derivative? That's cunning because then you have to know what you've already done and you have to know when you're coasting, you know. Uh, you also have to know when your life isn't active enough to be challenging you with new ideas, you know? So the cunning is the part that I think is, is in, because, you know, you're, you're, there's two things happening. One is you, you've already said a bunch of stuff. You've already sent up some artistic balloons and no one's talent is infinite. So you're kind of mining a seam that's been mined before. But second, you're changing and you're getting older. And that's a, that's a really amazing uh, experience because, well, I suppose what's happened to me is you become aware of just how vast things are, you know, uh, you're not going to get it in a novel. 
maybe you can hint at it. So there's a pressure of getting older. You feel like you should be getting wiser, but actually you're getting dumber. So, th so there's a lot of kind of coalescing things that make the cunning even more important, I think. And again, it, it, defining cunning as how can I get that ball through the hoop? How can I actually write a book at this age and at this stage that still will speak to people? That's, that's a, a big one. Does part of that capture the thought process going into Lincoln in the Bardo, where you were, your make-it-work stupid to yourself was the novel, that that was an explicit thing that you hadn't done that you wanted to try? Yes, that, and I, I made that contract with myself. I said, you are perched on a moment where you're afraid because you're going to have to leave a lot of your familiar gifts at the door. Are you willing to do that? Yeah, yeah, all right. It, but And I said, but, okay, but I'm only going to do it for six months. <laughs> and then if it's not working, I'm going to bail. Okay, yeah, that's fine, you know, because no one will know. <laughs> no one will notice that you've been working on it. I was feeling a bit cornered, I think, you know, but 10th of December had been successful, and, and I kind of knew what I had done in that book, like tricks-wise and, and, you know, technically and stuff. Uh, and it was getting a little bit claustrophobic in there. You know, I couldn't quite turn anywhere without finding something I'd already done. And so when that Lincoln book presented, I thought, okay, on the on the plus side, you're going to have to learn all new tricks. And on the negative side, you're going to have to learn all new tricks. Uh, and so it was a really nice feeling to, to kind of say, all right, I'll take, I'll be happy to take that risk. And if it blows up my career in a bad way, it was worth a, a try, better than solidifying or, or wilting. But then the, the, the pisser is that continues. It, it's uh, a never-ending challenge, but it's such a nice one at 64 because there's not too many other areas of, of your life where you're an adolescent. You know, you're, you've got bills to pay and you've got a routine and, you know, but in this one area, you really not only get to, but you have to um, try the, your best to see the world fresh. And you can, you actually can, but it's not easy, you know, so. Do you have a current new frontier that you're trying to approach as an adolescent again? I'll just say I do. Exciting. A soap opera, you say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, with sock puppets. I'm already impatient for it. Hurry up, just make it work. Well, I'm, I'm just, first I have to make the sock puppets, which is a new skill for me. And, you know, no, it, it, it's, always, it's always fun. And there's always, you know, there's just, it's life is so crazy. Like the process of getting older is... I'm finding it kind of terrifying and thrilling. It's like, wow, I, I did not realize. You know, I think I didn't realize when I was young that when old, I would be just as alive. You know, you, you think, well, you, you know, by, by 64, you're only about <laughs> a, a quarter there anymore. But, but no, in fact, you're there. And, uh, you know, pretty interesting seats. I'm very excited and feel very privileged to have been able to watch you test out those new seats at each stage. And I look forward to the next ones. Thank you. George Saunders' latest collection of short stories is Liberation Day. That's out now. Winnie Dunn has made a career out of helping others find their literary voice, and now it's her turn in the spotlight. This week on Read This, join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Winnie about her debut. Find it wherever you listen. Before we go, one last plug for Lincoln in the Bardo, because I am mindful it is in some ways an intimidating read. Let's face it, 
hundreds of voices, a ghost story drawing from Tibetan spiritual traditions and civil war history at the same time. If you're struggling, go to the audiobook. It's voiced by a cast of hundreds from David Sedaris to Julianne Moore to Nick Offerman, and it is an absolute treat. It cracked the book open for me, and it might for you too. And the other recommendation from me this week, I've just picked up a new release. It's called Ordinary Gods and Monsters by one of my favourite local authors, Chris Womersley. If you haven't read Chris, he's a terrific literary fiction writer who knows how to play with the conventions of genre. Ordinary Gods and Monsters about a young man in peril has all the bankings of an excellent thriller. I'm enjoying it already. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. Or, if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, go to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books. That's apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in the show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it, rate and review us, steal their phones and listen to it on those as well. It helps us a lot. Read This is produced by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.